Well, over the past several weeks, we've been spending our time in Romans chapter 8, and we've been doing it as a reflection on the resurrection. We've been doing an extended look at what we call the therefore, maybe, of the resurrection. That what are the implications of the death and resurrection of our Lord and just dwelling in Romans chapter 8. And today we break from that. We'll come back for two more passage, uh, two more looks at uh, Romans 8 as we end. But we took a break today on this Trinity Sunday <clears throat> that we might reflect upon this most essential nature of our faith. You know, it's often said there's three mono, monotheistic religions in the world, Judaism, Islam, and Christianity. And while that may in fact be true, uh, it, it's not necessarily helpful uh, to link Christianity in with Judaism and Islam as a monothe monotheistic religion, because while we are monotheistic, and there's no doubt about that, we believe there is, in fact, only one God. The nature of our monotheism is radically different. Right. Theirs is a simplistic monotheism, right, a static monotheism. And ours is dynamic. Ours is a triune uh, a triune monotheism, right? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, as you've been hearing Mark refer to, as we sung about in the, uh, in the hymn that we opened with this morning, right? Come Thou Almighty King. Our God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And it's important for us to take some time and dwell on that. And we hope that it is baked into everything we do uh, in our worship and in our church. Oftentimes, you'll hear me point out that when we read the scriptures, particularly in the New Testament, how organic, let's say, Paul's view of the Trinity is, that there's not a section which he says, okay, here, now I'm going to talk about the Trinity, and yet it's just baked in to the way he speaks about the nature of our salvation, right? I think just one of the great and classic examples of this that we're so familiar with would be that in Ephesians chapter 1, right? That great, beautiful run-on sentence that Paul gives about the nature of our salvation, where Paul views the very idea of our heavenly, our blessings in the heavenly place, so all these spiritual blessings that have been given to us, and he sees them through these Trinit this Trinitarian lens, that it is in fact the Father who has chosen us in his Son, and it is the Son who, in obedience and joyful and delightful obedience to his Father, comes and redeems a people, and the Spirit who comes as the guarantee of that inheritance that has been given who seals us in the sun and paul just weaves this in through that text so beautifully as he does throughout his epistles and so as we come to worship our god as we get in the daily and weekly habits of our liturgy and of our worship the trinity is baked in to how we worship and it's important to take a day here perhaps it's good and the church has found it wise to take time to reflect upon it particularly. And when we come to Sunday school, we can entertain some questions on this and, and maybe look back at some of the history of, of how the doctrine itself was formulated throughout history, uh, throughout church history. But today, the text that we have before us is this wonderful text in Matthew chapter 3, particularly the baptism of Jesus, and really it's verses 13 through 17. It's one of those texts that is held up where we see all three persons of the Trinity acting uh, very distinctly. Um, so here we have it very boldly for us at the beginning of Matthew in chapter three, and then once again at the end of Matthew in the Great Commission, where we're told to baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But here we have the story of Jesus' baptism, and I want to take a minute for us to think about it and reflect upon it. Our Old Testament reading this morning was Genesis 8. 
where, again, we have a water episode, right? We have a, a picture of new creation, Noah in his ark being brought to new creation. We have a dove involved as the father had sent Noah. Noah's on his way to new creation. The dove comes and confirms the fact that the ark is approaching new creation, that we're entering into this new age. And in some ways, that story and others as well are meant to be a backdrop for the story that we have before us here in this text of Jesus and his baptism, right? What's going on in this story? It's, it's, it's not just a, a sacramental act. It's not even merely just an act of repentance, though it is that Jesus is coming on behalf of his people and he is repenting with them and more importantly for them, right? Jesus is standing with his people. God is standing with his people and being baptized for them and with them and repenting for them. But behind this story are these Old Testament images. And one such image is the image of Noah, right? In, in Genesis chapter eight. And there are others as well. The story of new creation, where we have the dove hovering over the water, these water stories, right? The, the, the uh, excuse me, the Holy Spirit hovering over the waters in Genesis chapter one, in the early time of, of the chaos, if you will, of creation. In the darkness, the spirit is hovering over the waters, and out from those waters comes the order of creation itself. And here, even over these waters, the spirit is hovering, and out of these waters will come new creation himself, right? The person of Jesus Christ. So let's take a moment and reflect upon the baptism of Jesus, what is happening here, and then let's look at the three persons of the Trinity as we have them presented to us. You heard the story in, in Malachi. Malachi, the Lord comes, and in Malachi, the Lord is warning them, hey, a day of judgment is coming. The refiner is going to show up with his fire. The fuller is going to show up with his soap. And there's going to be a time of cleansing and a time of renewal. And what we have here in Matthew chapter 3 is that time. That time, that great and awesome day of the Lord has arrived. In some sense, it has arrived. And it's fascinating, in fact, that as the text begins in, John, in, in Matthew chapter 3, that we're introduced to John the Baptist. And John the Baptist is approaching these people who, in obedience, have gathered out in the wilderness for this baptism of repentance. And when he greets them, he greets them with really strong words. He greets them with words of judgment. Right? The day of judgment is upon us. The axe is laid at the root of the tree. The winnowing fan is in the hand of the one who will sort all things out. And the end result of this is going to be grain and chaff, and the chaff is going to be consumed with fire. This is, this is, this is the exact opposite of like every church growth plan there is out there to, to begin a movement with such a message as John the Baptist does, where his first words are, get ready, the fire's coming old school, you know, the fire and brimstone <laughs> preaching here. And John brings it to those who have gathered out in the wilderness. But that day, that great and awful or awesome day of the Lord is upon his church. The end is near. The end that we think, we tend to think, and I think most Christians, if we could kind of plot out a timeline of what the history and the story of redemption looks like, that end, which we view down the road somewhere down there that will come when the Lord comes and judges the earth. John the Baptist is saying something quite radical here. 
that that day that we all think is way down there somewhere is actually right here, right now. That end day is brought into this day. It's actually upon us. But it's not quite like you might have expected. The judgment is going to fall here in this passage. And hence, hence they're coming together for repentance and preparation for this great and awful day. But what we're going to find out is that this great and awful day falls upon one. It falls upon the representative of his people. And more shockingly, it falls upon God himself. God himself is in this text, not only speaking from heaven, not only descending like a dove, though he is there. But the most shocking thing about this text is that God is in line, that God is is standing with them in line to walk into the water to be baptized. That's the shocking part of this text. And when the judgment comes, it's not merely that God stands on this side of the judgment, bringing the judgment. But what we see in this text is God standing on this side of the line with his people bearing the judgment. But make no mistake about it. This is the great and awesome day of the Lord, or at least the beginning of the great and awesome day of the Lord that will climax and culminate, of course, on a greater baptism, the baptism in blood that Jesus will take upon his cross. Uh, you remember, we, in fact, we looked at this text coming to uh, Good Friday, that as Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem and John and James come and ask if they can sit with him when he uh, takes his seat on his throne. And Jesus asks them whether they're really up for what they're asking for. And he puts it in very strange and mysterious words if we don't have uh, the lens of what's happening in this text before us, because Jesus asked them, are you prepared? Are, are you prepared? Do you think you can handle the baptism that I'm about to be baptized with? And of course they say, yeah, no, no, no problem. But they don't understand what he means. But what Jesus is about to do when he goes to the cross is to endure the true baptism, right? The culmination of this baptism, what begins here, culminates there. What this baptism finds its resolution in that baptism. It's the same act, the same event. It's just here we have a beginning and there we have it closing this baptismal work of our Lord. And that's the shocking thing. God is all through this text speaking, descending, but there he is in the water itself. So John comes and he brings this message. Look at what's happening before you. This is the great and awesome day of the Lord. The axe is laid right at the root of the tree. The winnowing hand is in his hand. Judgment is coming. And therefore, the call to Israel is to repent, to acknowledge their sin, and to find cleansing. But of course, how can they find cleansing? How can water cleanse us from the filth that Israel has? It's beautiful and it's symbolic. And these, as, as Calvin said about the sacraments themselves, they are not naked signs. These signs do something when we are baptized, when we partake of the Lord's Supper. These symbols and signs are not naked signs. They feed us. They do something to us. But they only do something to us because Christ did something. The only reason water has any efficacy for the people of God in something called baptism, and the only reason it has any efficacy here, though this is still Old Testament baptism, the only reason it has any efficacy 
is because Jesus himself gets in that water. And if Jesus himself doesn't get in that water, then all these symbols are nothing but naked signs. But praise be to God, Jesus does get in the water. They're preparing themselves for the judgment that is coming. But like Macbeth, the spot they have, Lady Macbeth, cannot get out. There's no way to get this damn spot out. They can't do it. Only one can do it. And so they show up for this repentance and they are going through the signs and they're commanded to do so. So good on them that they're out there. Many were not out there, but these men and women had come to the river to find cleansing. But as we said, the real action of this text is when Jesus himself gets into the water. So let's spend time looking just really at verses 13 and 17 uh, through, uh, through 17. And again, the Trinitarian nature of what's going on here. Because here we see the dynamism of our God, the nature of the God that we worship, and through him then the nature of our salvation. Yes, you are saved, but you are saved by a Trinitarian God. You are saved through the Trinitarian work of this God, and you are saved unto a Trinitarian God. And we see the beautiful work of the Trinity laid out for us here. It's the Father, if we take it in reverse, in verse 17, the Father speaks after Jesus has gone into the water and the spirit has descended. It is the father who speaks. And this is the nature of the father. Even if we go back to the, or the work of the father, I should say, if we go back to the very beginning work of creation, right? How does God create the world? He speaks, right? It's the father who speaks all things into being. Let there be. And there is. It's the Father who declares. It's the Father who ordains. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, as we'll talk about in Sunday school, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are one God, the same in power and glory, right? They're equal in power and glory. Yet within the Trinitarian God, there are roles. The Father declares. The Father speaks. The Father orders. The Father chooses. The Father predestines. Of course, in compact with the other two persons of the Trinity, but the Father, in, as he's revealed in the scripture, is the declarer, the speaker. The Father says, let there be, and the word goes forth and creates. All things are made through him and unto him, says John, regarding Christ, regarding the Son, the word. But the Father is the sender. The Father sends his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him might not perish but have everlasting life this is the role of the father he sends his son the father sends the word to create the father sends noah to deliver his family and bring him into new creation this is the role of the father as we see it in the scriptures in psalm 2 which G, which uh, the father's words in this case are a pointer back to as well, right? Psalm 2, we could have read that as our Old Testament reading. It would have been great to do. And if we were, again, when we return to our liturgy and we sing a psalm in our middle service, I have no doubt we would sing today Psalm 2. Because in Psalm 2, the nations are plotting a vain thing. In Psalm 2, the nations are laughing and they're, or, excuse me, they're conspiring, they're roiling against God. And God, we're told, is in heaven and I don't know if anywhere else in the scripture it says this, but in Psalm 2 it does, that God who is in heaven laughs. He laughs at the nature of mankind that would raise its fist to God that would conspire against him. God laughs, and then he speaks. 
And when he speaks, he says, see, I have installed my son. I have set my son, my beloved son, upon my holy hill. I have a, you, you go ahead and plot all you want, have all your vain fist raisings to the Lord your God, but I have established my son, my king, upon my holy hill. And what we have here in Jesus' baptism, as he goes down into the water, and as he comes out of those waters, having stood with his people, having borne their sin, having repented with them, and most importantly for them, as he comes out of that, the Father declares what he declares in Psalm 2. This, this repenter, this, this representative repenter, this suffering servant, this one is my son, the one in whom I am well pleased. The father makes himself present in this text, primarily to shine the light upon his son, the one who will come and deliver his people. And also, of course, in this text, we have the spirit. Like with Noah in that image of the ark where Noah sends out the dove. The dove comes back empty-handed, sends out the dove again, and this time the dove comes back with the olive branch, confirming, in fact, that new creation has appeared, right? That you can rest. The judgment is over. So also in this text, the Holy Spirit descends upon the ark, if you will, descends upon the giver of rest, descends upon the new Noah. No olive branch this time, but the message is the same. Behold, new creation. Behold, the judgment that John is warning you about. The judgment where the axe is laid at the root of the tree and the winnowing fan is in his hand. That great and awesome day of the Lord that is coming. The judgment that is certain to come upon you for a sin which you cannot cleanse yourself from, no matter what water you walk into by yourself has been dealt with and you can rest the judgment is over it hasn't even begun yet in some sense and for christians for those who put their trust in this my son the son whom i love for you who put your trust in him the rest has begun the judgment is over and you didn't even know it happened this is the good news of the gospel and the dove, the Holy Spirit, like a dove, descends upon this ark, descends upon this Noah, this whose name means giver of rest. The Holy Spirit descends upon this one, confirming who he is. And this is the role of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the great illuminator. The Holy Spirit is the floodlight of God. The Holy Spirit is the one who shines the brilliant light on the, the actor in the center of the stage, who is Christ. The Holy Spirit is the confirmer, the anointer. Right? He comes and blesses the Son here. And now he will lead the Son right after this text. By the anointing of the, of the Holy Spirit, he will be led out into the wilderness to face Satan. The Holy Spirit is the confirmer, the anointer the animator. He's the one that gives life to things, right? The, the father breathes the breath of God into Adam and he becomes alive. This is the work of the Holy Spirit. He sustains the work of the father 
and the work of the Son. In Ephesians chapter 1, the Father is the one who predestines us and chooses us in Christ. And the Holy Spirit is the one who seals us in Christ. The Holy Spirit is the one who takes the work of Christ and applies it to you personally. And unites you to the Son. So that all that is the Son's becomes yours. And all that was once yours becomes his. This is the work that the Holy Spirit does. And he points out the brilliance and the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. And hence, Jesus even said, when I go, it's better for you than I go, for I will send my spirit. And what will the spirit do? He will teach you all things regarding me, right? He will be the spotlight that will spotlight me and my work. And he will, his anointing will come upon you as well. And you will learn all things of me. So we see the work of the father sending, calling, speaking, bringing life choosing, and the work of the Spirit, confirming, sealing, sustaining, illuminating, breathing, and then the work of the Son. And again, this is the shocking thing of the whole text. John the Baptist, though I'm not sure what John the Baptist knows at this point, who he thinks this one is, but he does know and believe that he is Messiah. Does he know that he is the Son of God? That'd be a great discussion we could have afterwards. We have a, a seminary professor here. I'd love to ask him. And we may, perhaps we can stick around for Sunday school so we can ask him. Um, what does John the Baptist know? Or what does John the Baptist think this man is that is before him? But at bare minimum, he is Messiah. And it doesn't make sense to him that you'd be getting in this water. And certainly not that you'd be asking me to baptize you. You should be baptizing me. That would make sense, right? This is the classic syndrome of people who are around Jesus. Remember Peter. Peter had the same question when Jesus knelt down, stripped himself, took the form of a servant, and knelt down to wash the feet of the disciples. Peter becomes John the Baptist there. And he's like, no, it shouldn't be this way. No, no, no. I, you're the king. right? I, I wash your feet. You, you don't wash my feet. And Jesus gives Peter a stern rebuke. It seems so humble. But Peter, Jesus gives Peter a stern rebuke. No, Peter. In fact, if you don't let me wash your feet, you can have nothing to do with me. If you are offended by the king of kings getting down on his knees and washing your feet, you have no idea what's about to happen tomorrow. When the king of kings strips down again. And is beaten beyond recognition and then dies on a cross for you. This is how it works in the kingdom. This is what the king does. There's no other place for the king to be than on his knees, washing the feet, serving his very disciples. What are you doing? What are you doing going into the water? If there's anybody who doesn't need to repent, it's you. And yet Jesus says to John, not quite the same rebuke as he gives to Peter, but let it be, John, so that all righteousness might be fulfilled. This needs to be done. I came for this very purpose to get into that water and to repent, not because I need to repent, but because you need to repent and you can't do it. Because you can't get that spot out, I need to be in that water. 
And this is the shocking thing of our God. Where do you find him? Again, I go back to Psalm 113. I particularly love that psalm where it says that there is no God like him, right? You are seated high above the heavens. There is no God like our God. He is seated high above the heavens. And yet we're told as such, he reaches his hand into the ash heap. Like our God who is above all gods, our God who is seated firmly above the heavens, our God who, when John gets a glimpse of him in Revelation chapter 4, God is seated firmly upon a throne and before him is a sea of glass. That is, everything is in perfect peace with God. God is not unsettled in the least by any of the affairs of man. Our God who is so sovereign and so transcendent and so glorious. Nonetheless, the uniqueness of our God is that he is such a God that as that God, he reaches into the ash heap to lift up the beggar and see him with princes. Our transcendent God is a God who is not afraid or ashamed to get his hands dirty. And by that, I don't mean become sinful. I just mean engage with the filthiness of creation, that he has not forsaken the beggar in the ash heap, but rather as such, he reaches into the ash heap. He enters the ash heap. He joins the beggar. He gets down in the water with the sinner, stands in line with them so that he might repent for them, so he might do for them what they could never do for themselves. Now, again, don't forget who these people are. They, their sin is not some uh, you know, distant sin. Their sin is against him. <laughs> he's the one who's been offended. This isn't just a knight riding in on a white horse to deliver people. He, he is the one who's been offended. He is the judge himself. The only one worthy to judge these people. And yet he stands with them. So that he can bear their judgment. He becomes the ark who goes into the water. He bears the judgment of the storm he sees. So that all who are in him hide safely in the ark. And pass through unto new creation. Never ever tasting the judgment. It's all happening to the ark. The ark is bearing it all as he goes into the water on their behalf. What are you doing here? What are you doing going into this water? He's bearing your judgment. That's what he's doing. And what we see here in this amazing Trinitarian image in the baptism of Jesus, as we said, culminates there upon the cross. Where he completes the work that has begun here. Here, this baptism is a picture of the full baptism that is to come. The baptism that he willingly undertakes, standing again in line, numbered with the transgressors. Stands in line that he might be overwhelmed by the judgment that comes down upon him so that we might never, ever taste it. Brothers and sisters, this is the good news of the gospel. You will never, ever know the wrath of God. You will never taste one bit of it. Everything that you endure, everything that you uh, are afflicted with, even, None of it will ever be the wrath of God, for the wrath of God was completely taken by the Son, by the King of Kings. So then now everything in him is love. 
Not because our God it would never do that. Not because our God is not a God of wrath, though he most certainly is. The axe is laid at the root of the tree. And outside of this ark is a consuming flood. Outside of this one, outside of Jesus Christ, there is judgment. Outside of Jesus Christ is the, is the fire of the, the chaff. Outside of him, the tree is going down because the axe is laid at the root of it. But in Christ, in Christ, there is zero wrath for us. Zero. Because he has borne it all so that we through him might receive the inheritance that he receives. That's what we talk about in Romans 8. That we might be heirs with him, yes, co-heirs with the Lord Jesus Christ. Inconceivable glory that is ours because of the work of our king and of our son, uh, of the son of God. This is the triune work of our God. Ephesians chapter 1. He, that is the Father, chose us in him, in Christ, before the foundational world. And the Son came again, joyfully obedient to his Father, and redeemed a people for the Father. And the Holy Spirit came, sealing us into the Son, so that all the benefits of the Son are ours, and giving us a guarantee, a down payment of the inheritance that is ours to come. Praise be to our triune God for this beautiful gift of our salvation. Amen.